0: This is episode 470 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. When you read anything, including scripture, there's something that happens that's called the theater of your mind. It is in the theater of your mind that you take descriptive text and add details to make the story more personal, more alive, more more kinetic. For example, consider this simple description It was raining. And as he walked to the car, he pulled his coat tight around himself and quickened his steps. Now, what scene are you seeing in your mind? And what details have you added to make this descriptive statement more descriptive? How hard was it raining? Was this a rule setting or a side street in New York City? Was the man on his front porch walking across his lawn to his car, or was he coming out of a restaurant or an office building in downtown Chicago? Did it take place during winter, maybe mid-January? Or was it early spring during the first week of May? What was the color of his coat? How old was the man? Was he dressed in a tuxedo like he was heading to a wedding? Or was he tired in worn out overalls on his way home from spending 12 hours in a wheat field on a John Deere harvester? How do you see this in the theater of your mind? There are no right or wrong answers. You are the one who adds these secondary elements to what you read, and you are the one that paints black and white text with a palette of colors you make up in your own mind. We all do this. Everyone does this whenever we read descriptive text, and it works exactly the same way with Scripture. When you read a passage of Scripture and let your mind focus on the words, you will begin to develop a picture in your mind of what this event might actually have looked like. And as your mental theater begins to expand, so will your emotions. And you will find you will begin to feel as you read the text what you would have felt had you been there personally 2,000 years ago as a firsthand witness. And as you master this tool, this expanding of the theater of your mind, Scripture will begin to take on an entirely new experience for you, and it is wonderful. So let's jump right in and learn how to leave Laodicea behind. I uh, have shared this with some of you on Tuesday, and uh, especially with the men that come on Wednesday. When you read anything, there's something called the theater of your mind, and you begin to see things in your mind as you read something. A book will simply just lay out certain text. It was raining out today, and I walked out and pulled my coat tight around me and hastened my steps as I walked to my car. Well, you're picturing that in your mind. You're picturing the color of the coat. You're picturing in your mind what it was, how it was raining. Was it a rule setting? Was he was out on his front porch, walking across his lawn into his car, or was he coming out of a restaurant or an office building in downtown Chicago and pulled his cloak around him and went out there? I mean, that's that's up to you the way that you look at that. And and when we read the scripture, what we do as Christians, let's say the gospel accounts, we focus on the red print. Well, that's what Jesus said. Those are the doctrinal teachings. That's, that's something we need to focus on, the Sermon on the Mount, all this profound truth. And then the black print that tells us where he was and who he was and who came up and what happened here, we have a tendency of just kind of reading it like it wasn't important, and these figures in Scripture become to us stick figures. They're just silhouettes. They're cutouts with no personality, nothing can we relate to at all. Jesus is getting ready to to do something, and a ruler comes up to him. We talked about this on Wednesday. A ruler comes up to him. We don't know who the ruler is. We just know he's a ruler, and he worships him and says, my daughter has just died. If you will come and lay your hands on her, she will live. Okay, but did he just stand in front of Jesus? Did he call him back at him? What does it mean to worship him? Was he on his knees with his head bowed? Was he looking up? And he asked Jesus to ba- break the law. Will will you come and touch an unclean dead corpse? Because it meant that much to me. Did he walk up or did he run up? I mean, there's a theater of your mind. And as you begin to look at scripture, you'll begin to, to, not so much the red print because that, you know, Jesus says what he says and our job is to find out what he said and what he meant. But all the extraneous stuff, when he calls Matthew, what kind of, you know, what kind of, tax booth was he in? Was it kind of like in The Chosen, where it's a small booth with bars on the front with a Roman guard outside? I mean, that was Dallas Jenkins' interpretation of this. And we look at it as a movie, and we assume that's what it was like. Or do you actually go and look at Jewish history and see, wow, it was actually just a table, just a table sitting out. There There was no Roman presence. There was a table sitting out there. There were temple guards. And maybe, maybe was it like that? And, and what did Matthew look like? What was his expression? What did the people around him think? So we're going to look today at, at the accounts of the Lord's Supper, and we're going to try to teach you how to expand the theater of your mind that you do every time you read a novel to incorporate those skills in scripture. And we do that by simply asking questions. So here's a a little example that I, I gave the men on Wednesday. So I want you to imagine, if you would, say like you're sitting in a tree or maybe you're kind of looking down on a scene, kind of like in a movie, have a drone coming by, and it's in the middle of nowhere and there's an intersection, in the middle of nowhere. Have you got that in your mind? Just out there, and it sticks. And there's a there's an intersection. And in way off in the distance, you could see some motion coming towards you. And after a little while, you were able to determine what that is. And you see it's a Greyhound bus. And the Greyhound bus is coming down the intersection, or coming down the road towards you at this intersection in the middle of nowhere. And it comes up to the intersection, and it pulls to a stop. Boom! You hear the gas brakes. You hear the Greyhound bus stopping. You hear all of a sudden the squeaking of the air doors that open. Stepping outside of the Greyhound bus was a man. And he was standing there. There's nobody else around. And have you got the picture in your mind? Do you? Okay, so um, what does the surrounding area look like? I mean, you have pictured this. this what does in the middle of nowhere look like? Is it a rural setting? Is it a mountainous setting? Is it basically just like, is it crops? And are are the crops ready for harvest, like corn or wheat, or are the crops already been harvested? Did it take place during the summer, in the fall, or is it in the winter where there's snow on the ground in the middle of nowhere? Did it take place in the Appalachia, where it's a very poor section? Did it take place in Montana? Did it take place in Iowa? Where did this take place? And by the way, the road, the intersection, is it paved? Does it have the, the... lines down the center of it? Is it a well-maintained country road, or is it a dirt road? And when the intersection comes together, are there four stop signs, are there just two stop signs, or is it one of those really scary roads out in the country where there's no stop signs at all? When the bus pulled up and the man got out, what did he look like? How old was he? How was he dressed? Was he dressed according to the conditions around him. In other words, if it took place in the winter, did he have winter clothes on? If it took place during the summer or the spring, was he dressed kind of casual? Did, did his clothes look like he was well-to-do or maybe just middle class, or were they kind of unkept and shabby? Was he wearing cowboy boots? Was he wearing sandals? Was he wearing just just regular ca- business casual clothes? Did he have a docker shirt on and, or docker pants on and some you know, polo shirt or or was he in jeans with big belt buckle? I mean, how was he? Now, if I started with Karen and went this way, we all vision this man differently and we vision him based on our experience. By the way, did he have any luggage with him? And if he did, was it thrown over his shoulder like a a travel book bag? Was it a piece of luggage he carried in one hand? Or did he have one of those things where it kind of carted along like you do in an airport? Was it just one piece of luggage? Was there other luggage there? Did it look like he was staying just overnight? Or was he actually moving to a new location? And why did he get off in the middle of this intersection where there's no one around? Is someone going to pick him up? Is that person a good friend of his? Is the person who's going to pick him up? Are they late? Or did he offend them somehow? So they're not picking him up at all? Where is he going to stay? Is he going to stay in a, in a hotel? Is he moving to a new job? Does he have a, going to be staying with a friend's house? Is, is he a pastor taking on a new church? Is he a, a father who's trying to reconcile with a wayward daughter, a wayward son? Who is this guy? Where is he going to stay? And why is nobody waiting on him? Is he running to something or is he running from something? And why did he get off here? Did he get off here because that's all the money he had and that's as far as the ticket would go? Or was there some other reason there? See the point? All I did was ask questions. I just asked questions that we don't have any answer to But in the theater of your mind, if you were getting ready to write a story about this, and you were going to have backstory and character and, and try to write it in such a way that if I or someone else is reading it, I can relate to that person. I understand that person. I like that person or I don't like that person. I feel anxious because he feels anxious or or whatever it is. I'm connected with that person. The same skill can be applied scripture like we talked about this on um we talked about this on tuesday we took nathaniel good night hardly anything said about nathaniel there's this encounter he has with jesus in john chapter one where jesus says look an israel an israelite a true israelite where there is no guile how did you know me lord well before i met you here i saw you up under the fig tree really wow you're the son of god and the king of israel and Jesus is like, you say that now because I said I saw you under the fig tree? Let me tell you, time will come when you'll see the Son of Man ascending and descending like Jacob's ladder on, uh, up into heaven. And do, do you remember the story? That's all we know about Nathanael. But if you look at other things about Scripture as what we did on Tuesday, you find that the Bible tells us tons of things about Nathanael that you have to dig a little deeper to understand. So we're looking at the Lord's Supper, and we're looking at four counts of the Lord's Supper, and I'm going to show you how to do this and how to make this rather strange event become more alive to you by simply asking questions. We're not changing anything, we're not adding anything, we're not taking anything away, we're simply asking questions. And we're going to look at all four counts, beginning with the Matthew account. Matthew 26, verse 17. Let's read this, and we'll just highlight a few things that Matthew reveals to us. And then we're going to look at Mark and Luke and John and see if they tell us any more than just what Matthew does. Matthew 17. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples, that's more than one, plural, came to Jesus saying to him, "'Where do you want us to prepare for you "'to eat the Passover?' "'And Jesus gave him some instructions.'" Note the instructions. "'Go into the city, and a certain man,' not gonna tell you who the man is, it's just a certain man, "'and say to him, the teacher says, "'My time is at hand. "'I will keep the Passover at your house "'with my disciples.'" So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, when evening had come, he sat down with the 12. And as they were eating, so there's already the meal going on here. As they were eating, he said, "Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. They were exceedingly sorrowful. And each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, he who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The son of man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, who was betraying him, active word here, answered and said, Rabbi, not Lord, but Rabbi, is it I? And he said to him, you have said it. Again, second time now, and as they were eating, didn't happen begin or the end, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. He then took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink from all of it for this is the, my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Okay, that's the Matthew account. Feast of unleavened bread. Disciples come up to Jesus. Where do you want us to prepare Passover? He gives them rather cryptic instructions. Go into the city, man. Uh, you will meet a man there. You come up to the man and you say, "Hey, uh, where are we supposed to uh, prepare for the for the master's disciple and follow him?" And he will show you this room. They went. It happened just like he said. And they prepared the Passover for him in some sort of room. Don't know how big it is. Says so. Uh, when evening had come, he's obviously in the room with his disciples and they're eating and he talks about betraying and then they're still eating. So it's still in the process. It's not in the beginning and it's not at the end, still in the process of eating. He, uh, he takes bread and he breaks it and he passes the cup around and he makes the statements that we're all familiar with. And then when it's all over, he sings, they all sing a hymn and they're off to the Mount of Olives. Got the picture? How are they going to know who this man is? I mean, go into the city to a certain man. What man is this? I mean, how am I supposed to know what man I'm supposed to go up to? I want you to imagine that Jesus says, I want you to go to Sam's on Black Friday. And I want you to walk in there and meet a certain man and tell the man this. There are 300 people in Sam's. They're all wearing masks. I have no idea who am I supposed to, what are we talking about here? Don't know in Matthew. But let's look at Mark 14 and see if we can glean any other information here as we're beginning to to understand the story a little bit better. Mark 14, verse number 12. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, well, why is that even important? Matthew doesn't tell us because he's writing to Jews and the Jews already know that. Mark is not writing to Jews. Mark is writing to Gentiles or to Romans. They don't know, so Mark tells us. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb. Oh, okay. Now I know why it's unleavened bread. His disciples came to him. "Where, Where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? And he sent, ooh, two of them. All 12 didn't go. Matthew doesn't tell us. He just tells us that the disciples went. We don't know how many went. Mark tells us that there are two of them. So he sent just two of his disciples. We don't know what two, but we do know he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city. And now Mark tells us a little more detail that Matthew doesn't tell us. Mark tells us how you're going to know who this man is go into the city and a man will meet you. There's going to be a lot of people meeting me. How will I know it's the right guy? He will be carrying a pitcher of water. Well, everybody's carrying a pitcher of water, not men, not men. In their culture at that time, that was a job for a woman. You know, when Jesus met the woman at the well as she came to get water, I mean, that that wasn't a man's job. So it's really amazing, you're gonna meet a man and that man is gonna be doing something that seems out of the ordinary. That's how you're gonna know who the guy is. He's gonna be walking up to you, carrying a pitcher, which is not customary for a man to do. Okay, The, the questions I had in Matthew are kind of getting answered a little bit in Mark here. You're to follow him. Where am I supposed to follow him? Verse 14, wherever he goes in, whatever door he goes in, you go in and you say to the master of the house, oh, so the man, it's not his house, he's a servant and I'm following him into the master's house and when I get to the master's house, I'm supposed to say, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passovers with my disciples? say, this is what the teacher is asking you. So Jesus has already arranged this. And now we know it's a guest room. We know it's a room that not just his living room or his dining room. It's a room that's set apart for other people. Well, where is this guest room? Verse, verse 15. Then he will show you a large upper room. Oh, so it's a guest room, but it's on the second story of their house. Jewish houses were like that. They would have the living quarters on the bottom. Sometimes they would have a, a guest room, and it's a large guest room. And when we think of large guest rooms, we think of a room that can see, what, 15 people, 20 people? It's a big, large living room here, maybe several hundred square feet. But if you look at it here, it's a large guest room. It's almost like a hall because it is believed, nobody knows this, but it's believed, nobody knows for sure, that when the disciples in Acts chapter 1 were there, and they saw Jesus ascend into heaven, that they went back into an upper room, and back when they were in an upper room, they stayed there for 10 days praying. Do you remember? And how many of them were there? 120. So the room has to be at least as large as this room. If we packed 120 people in here, it would be really, really tight. And so it's the the upper room, this large upper room, maybe even bigger than this room. And so it's got the tables for the 12 to actually participate in the Passover feast, but you've got this entourage of others that are probably there serving them. There's a lot of other people probably observing this rather than just the 12. I know, but When I look at Michelangelo's picture of the Last Supper or Da Vinci, whoever it is, it's just them sitting at this long table looking at each other with funny expressions. And so that's how it must have been. No. Now when you begin looking more and digging a little bit deeper. Then he will show you a large upper room. And not only that, but that room is furnished and prepared. Tables are set. Cushions are laid out food is ready. What I want you to do, my two disciples now, I want you to go in there and make ready and prepare the meal for us. So his disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. In the evening, he came with the 12. Doesn't mean there weren't others with him, but we know that the 12 was with him. And as they sat and ate, Jesus said, surely I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And they begin to be sorrowful and say to one another. First, they're asking, Matthew says they're asking, Jesus, is it me? Lord, is it me? Judas, teacher, is it me? Rabbi, is it me? But now they're looking at each other. Is it, is it me? Could it be me? Do you see anything in me that would cause me to do that? Is it I? And to another, is it I? And he answered and said to them, it is one of the twelve. So one of you 12. It's not the other entourage. If there was only 12 in the room, he wouldn't have identified them as a separate group. It's just one of the 12. Well, it has to be one of the 12. There's only 12 of us here. No, it's one of the 12. It's not those people. It's not the people serving. It's not those that have been with us from the very beginning that were not called to be the 12. It is one of the 12 who dips with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it was written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, and gave it to them and said, take, eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said, this is the blood of my new covenant, which is shed for many. Surely I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until the day which I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Did you get a little more information there? Okay. Let's look at the Luke passage. Now, Luke, of course, is the physician who carefully examined everything and wrote an orderly account of the life of Christ for a man named Theopolis. And he did this in such a way that um, so there'd be an account of this. So he interviewed people and got the entire story. So maybe Luke adds a little more details here that uh, the other ones don't. Luke chapter 22, will begin in verse number seven. Then a the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed... Um, then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. And he said to, well, Mark told us it was two disciples. Luke tells us who those disciples were. He says to Peter and John, okay, didn't know that in Matthew. Seemed like it was just a lot of disciples. Mark tells me there were two of the, the 12. Now, Luke tells us exactly who those two are. He sent Peter and John, saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. And they said, where? Where do you want us to, to prepare it? He said, behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house in which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished upper room there make ready. So they went and found it just as he had said to them and they prepared the Passover. When the hour had come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. And he said to them, this is only added in Luke, with fervent desire, I had desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I want to eat this Passover with you more than anything. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Watch this. Then he took the cup And gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Well, isn't that the initiation of the Lord's Supper? No. No. Don't make that mistake. This is the closing of the Old Testament covenant. Because after that, verse 19, he turns this into what we call the Lord's Supper. Verse 19. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, and said, This is my body, which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. He took his bread, which represented his body. He broke it and praised the Lord for the fact he was going to suffer. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, four cups of wine during the Passover feast, two before the meal, to after the meal. This is the third cup after supper. This is, of course, the cup of redemption, the cup of atonement. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goes and has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he was betrayed. Then they begin to question among themselves, which of them is it who should do this thing? And then there was a dispute among them about who is going to be the greatest. Gosh. I like these guys less in Luke than I did in Matthew and Mark. And then we have John. John 13 doesn't tell us about the the cup and this is my body and all that kind of stuff. John focuses on other teachings that he had. But John includes something in here that is really profound. John 13, verse one. Now, before the feast of Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come, Jesus was fully aware of what he was doing, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own, that's agape, by the way, loved his own who were in the world, he loved agape them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil had already put in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus knowing that, that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God. There was nothing left to prove. He was in full assurance of being in the center of God's will, rose from supper and laid aside his garments. That's plural, plural, stripped down to his undergarment pretty much. His undergarment back then was not like our undergarments today. It was just like it was a thin sheer that they wore took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water in a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter. Again, that's Simon Peter's. that's his carnal name. And Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? And Jesus said, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but you will know, 1097 Gnosko, you will know after this. Peter said, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you will have no part of me. And Peter said to him, okay, since I have no idea what you're talking about, Lord, not only my feet, but my hands and my head, and you know the rest of the story. So turn back to Luke chapter 22. Now what we have read are the accounts in all four gospels of the event that took place at the Lord's Supper. They don't get any more information than that. I don't know anything about this man who they met. I don't know anything about the guy whose home that they were um, they were going to be in. I don't know how Jesus arranged that ahead of time, but obviously he did, which means that there were obviously some very wealthy, because this had to be a big room. He had servants, had to be a big room. He, he had some wealthy people that were following him, uh, even though obviously the disciples didn't even know who this guy was, because he didn't say to them, hey, I need you to go see the father of the rich young ruler. Remember him? Oh, Yeah. I, I know Paul. I know who that guy is. And we're going to be staying at his house. Oh, Lord, I know who you're talking about. Or maybe it's Lazarus' house or somebody like that. The disciples didn't know. He didn't give him that instruction. He basically said, I want you to walk by faith. I want you to go into this town, bustling with a bunch of people, somebody going to the well and coming back, and a man will approach you. He'll know who you are. And just so that you're not deceived or led astray, and you have the confidence to know that this is the right guy, he will be carrying a water pitcher. All right, that'll stand out in a crowd. Okay. And what do you do? You follow him into wherever he goes. Don't even ask questions. And when you get there, you say to the master of the house, the teacher says, Where's the large room that you prepared for me to have my disciples? And while you're there, go ahead and prepare and we'll be there. Shortly. Lord, I want to know more about this story. I mean, I want to all I can really know is is what I've read. But I want to experience it. I want it to become real to me. I want to feel it. I want to, I want to wonder if I was in that crowd, if I was also going with Peter and John, and I went into the city, if I I don't know if I was in the upper room and and I was off in the corner somewhere and I'm just observing this because there are other people there because they're all being served and and Jesus is celebrating this with the twelve but there's no reason to have this massive upper room just for twelve people that could possibly hold 120 later on and other people as part of the Lord's Supper other people are serving you and so I, I just what was it like what what was the what was the was there tension in the air I mean what happened when when Jesus actually began to wash the disciples' feet. And if you look at the chronology here, one of the people's feet in which he washed was Judas's. He actually washed the feet of the person who was betraying him. Here's the Lord of the universe, the Lord of the universe coming to his disciples and taking on the lowliest task of a slave, a no-name slave, and washing their feet. And not one of them said anything. Judas didn't say anything that's recorded in the Scripture. John and James and, and Andrew didn't say anything. Peter, as his case, his personality, didn't even get what Jesus was doing and you know, blurted something out. And Jesus kind of mildly rebuked him because of that. And what if you were in that room? What if as soon as he... Wash their disciples' feet, and you're sitting, you're not, you're not part of the table. And again, what they had is they had these U-shaped tables, and they were low to the ground, and the people would recline kind of this way, and they didn't have chairs necessarily like we do, but they did have benches, and you're sitting over there on a bench, and you're observing all this, and you're, you're you know, overwhelmed that the Lord would do that. And then he turns and makes eye contact with you. And the first thing you're thinking is, oh, please don't come over here. But he does, and he walks right over to you, And he gets on his knees. This is the very Lord that said not 15 minutes earlier, I fervently desired to to desire to have this meal with you before I suffer. And you heard him say suffer. And that word never even resonated in your mind. Nobody asked him what that meant. How are you going to suffer, Lord? what's going on, Lord? Is there something wrong with you, Lord? Do you have to go to the doctor? Are you having chemo? Do you have some surgery that is scheduled? Did Mary die? What happened, Lord? How are you going to suffer? They didn't even care to even focus on that word. So much so that later on, after he initiated, this is my blood, shed for you. This is my body, broken. I'm giving thanks and thanking the Lord for the opportunity and the privilege to have my flesh ripped for their sins. They get in an argument about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. What must Jesus have felt like? What would you feel like if you got down on his knees and and began washing your feet? Would you look down at him? Would you be crying? Would you try to bid him to go away, and then as he's washing your feet, and he just raises his head and looks up into your face, now what would that feel like? It would almost feel like that account in in the courtyard where Jesus has been pretty beat up, and and Peter denies him three times, and as soon as the cock crows, and he recognizes what it is, he looks at Jesus, and the account says that Jesus looked at Peter, their eyes met. And maybe Jesus was off away and blood trickling down his face. And Peter had just said, I don't know the man and curse. And then he looks up and sees Jesus once he hears that cock crow and realizes the Lord told me this was going to happen. And then it says, Peter went out and wept bitterly. Was it Could have been that kind of look? Lord, you've done this for me and I have rejected you and forsaken you and I haven't cared about you and I've only really cared about me and all I wanted was to seek your hand and not your face. What must that have been like? I don't know. But as you, in your mind's eye, place yourself in that room and see what's going on, it it changes things. It changes the way that you that you look at the disciples. Now, we know in one of the accounts that Peter asked John, asking who it is that's going to betray him. And John, it says, this is in the John account, leaned back on his breast and asked him that question. Not for everybody to know, but John wanted to know. John, the one, that defines himself or describes himself as the one who Jesus loved. So Peter, I mean, I don't know how this took place in my mind's eye. I see Peter off in the end at the head of the table of the U-shape, Jesus in the middle, and ask him, of course John is right next to Jesus. Of course John is, is this way next to Jesus. He leans his head back, and he looks back and says, Lord, who is it? And Jesus says, just to John, doesn't make this big announcement to everybody, just to John, that's why John recorded it, it's the one in whom I dip the bread in the dip and hand it to. He's the one who's going to betray me. And he dips it in there, and he gave it to Judas. It doesn't say he got up, because if he got up, it had have been a big deal. Why are you getting up and walking all around here and handing it to Judas? So obviously it had to be a situation like this. And then John was, of course, heartbroken. You know, whatever you do, do it quickly. So Jesus even had Judas, the one that was in the process of betraying him, the one whom he washed his feet, sitting right next to him in the place of honor at the Passover. And what kind of man is this Jesus? How how do we treat him? Then the day of unleavened bread came, and the Passover must be killed. And he said to Peter and John, we're kind of tagging along with Peter and John, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. And they said to him, where do you want us to prepare? And he said, behold, when you have entered the city, undefined, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water, follow him into the house in which he enters. Then you will say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? then he will show you a large furnished upper room there make ready and when they found it just as he had said it to them they prepared the passover what do you think that room was like i mean how do you think they felt when uh, here's this guy walking with a pitcher of water and comes up to them and they realized who he was so they followed him down the road around the corner who knows where it was in so this very large house obviously because it had a a large upper room. And they went in and told the master of the house, I'm communicating a message from my master that says the teacher wants to know where he can prepare the Passover. And they walk up this staircase and when they get to the top, they see this large furnished room. And again, if it's the same room that they talk about in Acts chapter one, it would hold 120 people, if not more comfortably. And it's all prepared. So you walk into the room and you see the tables all set up and you see the serving trays over here and you have passed the the lamb that's being cooked and the bitter herbs and other people are coming in and maybe his servants and setting it up for this momentous meal. I mean, how would you feel? What would you do to prepare? Would you, I wonder when the Lord did this. I don't even know who this guy is. Do you realize he knows people that we don't even know? And we've been with him nonstop for three and a half years. I mean, this guy, a believer? And then he sits down with him, earnestly desiring to have this Passover meal with you before I suffer. You heard the words. You heard him say the word suffer. And you never asked what that meant. It's kind of like, it's kind of like when, um, well, since she's not here, we'll use Roberta as an example. Roberta, how you doing? Oh, really suffering right now. It's really, it's really bad. And she uses the word suffer to describe her current state of being. And our response to her is, Really? Okay. Hey, can anybody get me a Coke? Or, hey, did you see the movie on television last night? Or how would, how would you feel if you were the one suffering? And you shared it with the people that are closest to you, your family, your friends, your, the ones that are going to go on. You, you shared this, I've wanted to spend this time with you so bad before I suffer, which means suffering is right around the corner. And not one of them even mentioned it. And then there's a debate that breaks out about who's going to be the greatest. Well, I think, uh, I think it's probably Tim is going to, uh, Tim's going to betray him. I know because I'm better than Tim. No, Tim says, it's not me. It's Vic. I'm better than Vic. No, it's David. And, and when this fighting goes on, who knows what it was about, about who's going to be the greatest. I can't imagine how Jesus felt. Maybe it was at that time. Turned around and started washing their feet. Can you get the feel for what it must have been like? And again, we're going through this really quick, and I'm almost done. But you ask questions of the text. And you, how would I feel if the Lord washed my feet? How would I feel if I'm sitting with these men, and Jesus says, um, one of you will betray me. Well, excuse me, but I know it's not me. I would know if I have betrayed you. So is he talking about I've currently betrayed you? Or is he talking about he sees some weakness in me that I at some point will betray you? Currently betraying you, Lord, it's not me. But none of them said that. What they basically said was, is it I? Is it I? Could it be me? They looked at each other. Tim, could it be me? Or could it be you? I mean, I mean, do you see something in me that I'm not seeing? And then they asked the Lord, Lord, is it me, is it me, is it me? So they must have interpreted it as something that wasn't currently taking place, but something that was going to take place. Therefore, when, when whatever you do, do it quickly, Judas got up and left, they would have immediately assumed he was the one that was actively betraying him, but they didn't. They thought he was going to go out and buy more food because he's the one that kept the money back. He's the one that had the cash, he had the debit card. Do you remember? And as you begin to to think how you would feel, how you would respond, what his words would mean to you, then you have this ability to use more than just a mental understanding of his words, but able to, to experience it with your other senses that makes it come more alive. Does that make sense? I'll give you two more examples and I'll quit. Um, And I shared these on Tuesday. So if you were there Tuesday, forgive me for sharing these again. Two times I remember wanting to know what it must have been like. One time was when Jesus was flogged. And I can't imagine what that pain must have been like. Paul talking about beating with rods and stuff of that nature. And I've seen, this was before the Passion of the Christ. And if you watch the Passion of the Christ, it's like, I'll tell you everything you need to know now. You know, that was horrific. And so I was in, I was in a, I was in my study and I took one of those um, little rods that you twist the blinds with and kind of move it like this. It just whips through the air. And I thought, uh, you know, this is kind of like a rod. I wonder what it felt like with Paul, for example, to be hit with one of these by a big burly man as hard as he can 40 times. So I took my leg and I put it on my desk chair and as hard as I could, and I know I was holding back, as hard as I could, I whacked myself on the, on the Top of my thigh, just to give some sort of feeling of what it was like, and like I shared on Tuesday, when I even think about that, my face gets flushed. I can't tell you how bad that hurt. I mean, it was—it took my breath away. It was, you know. And then I thought, my gosh, to to be beaten like that—worse than that—to be beaten like that because of the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. What would I do? What must have that been like? You know. Maybe after, the, maybe after the 10th or 11th time when you've reached the pinnacle of the pain, that the pain's not anymore, it's just so intense your brain begins to shut down and he's counting out loud 26, 27, oh, that's 13 more, 28, you know, 30, I got 10 more of these, I don't know if I can, I can handle this. What must have that been like? And now when I read those accounts, I can relate to it a little more as just stick words and stick figures on a page because I've experienced just a little bit of maybe what that was like. See what I'm saying? Not suggesting you do that. I was reading an account, amazing story, where these four men bring this man who's crippled and they can't get into where Jesus is, so they climb up on the roof and they tear the roof off and they lower him down on a cot in front of him. Do you remember the story? And Jesus saw their faith. What, the faith of that man? Doesn't say. The faith of that man and the four? Doesn't say. Or was it just the four? We don't know. But he saw their faith, and Jesus did not do something to let that man know he was healed. He didn't grab him by the hand and pull him up. He didn't zap him in the head. He didn't do any of those things. He looked at him and said, your sins are forgiven. What? What? All the Jews get all upset with that. What? Okay. All right. So that you'll know the son of man, which is harder to say your sins are forgiven or say, rise, pick up your mat and go home. But so that you'll know the son of man has the power on earth to forgive sins, I will turn back to this man and I will say, I'm not touching him. There's no physical manifestation that takes place to convince him he's healed. I will say the words to him, pick up your mat and go home. So the words come out of his mouth and you're the man on the mat and you're laying down and you're hearing his words. You've heard him say, my sins are forgiven. Okay. I don't know if that's true or not. Now you've heard him say to pick up my mat and go home. Are you out of your mind? I I, I can't move. I can't do anything. I mean, that's why my four friends had to bring me here. And you can almost see this process going on in his head as faith is being built up so i laid down on the floor and i curled myself up kind of like stacy curled myself up with my hands and my feet drawn up like i was i I couldn't move at all and i just imagined me laying there and the lord saying those words to me pick up your mat that's your action you do it you pick up your mat and go home and every fiber in my being is saying, I can't, I'm a cripple, come on. But he told me to. And so what must have been like? We don't know. The man may have jumped right up and everything would have been great. We don't know. But what must it have been like for that guy in that process of faith to be building in him? Do you think it began with one finger? I do. So he's, maybe he's laying like this. And I I can't get, I can't do anything. I mean, my body's totally unresponsive to me. But you, you said to pick up my mat and go home. And I believe you're the son of God and I believe you're the great healer. So much so that my friends brought me here. And whether they brought me here, kicking and screaming, that sounds terrible. Whether they brought me here against my will or whether they brought me here because I wanted to see Jesus, we don't know. But the fact is, I, I don't know what to do but I can trust you with this, with just this. And as soon as that finger began to move, faith began to swell. Oh, that's my finger. I'm now controlling my finger. And it's just like with us. Every time God does something in our life, it 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 teaches us and encourages us to take deeper steps in faith and deeper steps in faith because he was faithful in the past. He's faithful now. He'll be faithful in the future. And maybe that led to this. And then that led to this. And joy and excitement and exuberance and faith began to build until the point that he can move all his body and jumped up and you know screamed and hard, whatever it was. But instead of just reading that as words... And he said that to the man, and the man picked up his mat and went home. If you'll take some time and just put yourself, what would it been like for you for that to happen? You're not adding anything to scripture, but it's becoming more alive to you. Now as you read that passage, ah, I can feel what he must have felt because I've already felt it before. I can, I, can ex- I can almost experience the joy and the growing faith that he has. Man, that's the most incredible story. Thank you, for Lord, for bringing it back to me because my faith is increased by just reading it because I somehow know what it must have been like or what it would have been like if I experienced it myself. Does that make sense? There's nothing more important in God's word becoming alive to us. We watch television where other people interpret it for us and show it to us on a screen. It used to be small, on these large screens, and we we're watching another person's interpretation of that. And hey, I never really thought about that. That's pretty cool. I can't imagine Jesus, like in the chosen, Justice and I were talking about that yesterday. I can't imagine when he put a coat on the leper that uh, just got healed, looked at him and said, Not too shabby. You know, but that's it, it worked in, in what Dallas Jenkins in the, you know, in the shows that that's how he kind of interpreted. Okay, it's in his mind's eye. The difference is we're, he's adding words we're not. But um, in your mind, if you'll just allow your God given imagination, by the way, if you've ever gone through my utmost for his highest, you will find that at least 15 times and the 365 devotionals that he has, he talks about a godly imagination. He talks about letting your imagination be used by Christ to be able to let you experience things that you never have before. And I'm encouraging you to do that. So here's some questions. Oops, I was just going to close with. Did what we go through today, and we just looked at a small part of it. Did it make the next time we have the Lord's Supper, a little bit more alive to you. Oh, here we go again. I got to go up and I get the bread and I get the thing and I pray and I drink and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, but why don't you think about the washing and the feet? Why don't you think about what it meant about suffering and how he actually gave thanks before he broke the bread that was representative of his body? I am so thankful that I get to go be brutalized on the cross for you, Steve. And and, and I'm so thankful that I can share this meal with you, that you can continue sharing it as often as you do, my death and my burial and the brokenness of my body. And, And I'm so excited about sharing it with you that I will not eat it again until I can eat it once again with you. It's that special for me in his kingdom. And if you can move beyond just our haphazard, callous, I ain't got time for this kind of thing, and feast sometimes on his word, everything changes. Amen? Let me pray.